This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Group Text. So anyone who listens or knows me at all knows I am an absolute documentary junkie. And I've had the privilege of getting to screen a a documentary that absolutely moved me emotionally all over the map. Uh, It's about the life and times of Brian Wilson. But the extraordinary thing about this doc is who made it. Luckily, I have the filmmakers with me today. Brent Wilson, no relation, and Jason Fine. Both of you are incredibly accomplished in your respective fields. Brent, you as a filmmaker, and Jason, you as, I guess it's officially the former editor-in-chief of Rolling Stone magazine, as well as having written some of the seminal articles on different artists for the magazine. I think I have that right. That's it. <laughs> I think I have that right. Who knows? <laughs> such such a pleasure for me to talk to both of you. One of the things I was saying earlier was it's we know so much about Brian Wilson's life, but the way you attacked the subject matter and Brian's life in itself was so fresh and different and amazing. Basically, Jason, you drive around Los Angeles in a car with Brian. And there is a a camera in the car, and it's pretty much just you two talking. How did you come up with, with that way of, of doing it? I've never seen a documentary done like that. Yeah. Well, Brent, Brent can tell you about the, the whole origins of the idea, and I can just say that, you know, over the years, Brian and I have spent a lot of time driving around L.A., um, you know, the car is kind of a place where where you can be comfortable and sort of close with someone, but also there's no pressure to talk all the time. You can just drive and look out the window for a while or listen to music. And that's a comfortable environment for Brian and also kind of, you know, a great metaphor for just life in L.A. generally. And yes. usually when we're driving, we're, you know, we're driving somewhere to eat. <laughs> so there's yeah. also always like a goal there of, of, of some food at the end of the, the run. And, you know, Brian, and I have always love to just go and hang out and eat sushi or whatever. So that that's that's been kind of a, a pattern of our, you know, reporting of me reporting on Brian and just our friendship over the years. And Brent kind of ingeniously um, came upon that as a device, you know, to, to make this movie happen. I mean, Brent, that's a huge leap of faith as a filmmaker to basically say, I'm going to put a camera in a car and drive around in a basically a follow van so that when batteries ran low, you could pull over and change them. I mean, it really, you had to have a lot of, how did you guys meet? Because you had to have a lot of faith in Jason to ask the right questions and solicit the answers that would be, would help move the movie, who help move the documentary forward. I mean, that's a, 
That's got to be a terrifying, you know, <laughs> you know, thing to be going, going every day. And oh God, dear God, we have to do this before traffic or after traffic. Yeah, or or right through Dead Man's Curve, you know. Oh yeah, good. Yeah, and up and down PCH because that's always so, feels so safe. <laughs> exactly, it's always such a safe place. But while no, changing they, the iPod and talking to Brent through the walkie-talkie, and you know. Yeah, changing the music, and yeah. I was very impressed that you—they did not show you actually looking down at the shuffle on your phone. Yes, just saying. <laughs> I appreciated that no texting thing. That's right. We had to but, obey all laws, right, Jace? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> always wearing a seatbelt. Um, so, Brett, how did you? How did how did you guys meet? And how did you think this was gonna? Why did you think this was gonna work? Well, first of all, thanks for recognizing that because you're right. It, it was most, it was a tremendous leap of faith. I, when we started it and we decided to go down this path, I, I thought to myself, you know, this is, you know, this is either going to be fantastic or going to be the end of my career. Um, and it just, it isn't going to hold up. And literally, I, you know, we really didn't know if it was going to work or how it was going to be received, you know, up, literally up until we showed at Tribeca. Uh, to an audience for the first time that I feel like, oh, okay, the audience does understand and they are going to go along for this ride and they are willing to put themselves in the back seat with these two guys longer than, you know, five or 10 minutes than you would get on a comedians in cars or call for careful or karaoke. So thank you for recognizing that because it was, it was a leap of faith is a great way to put it. But uh, as you kind of saw in the beginning of the film, I tried to interview Brian myself um, I don't know if I was just being naive or gullible or arrogant, but I thought, ah, you know, I, I'm pretty good at my job. I can make this work. And it was just 45 minutes of like a Mike Tyson fight. I was just, you know, <laughs> just not, and I just kind of kept going back in and Brian kept knocking me back out. It was just, yeah. he just doesn't like to sit down for interviews. He just doesn't like it. And uh, Brian's manager suggested I talk to Jason. He goes, you know, Jason has been interviewing Brian for years, knows him really well, and he might offer some advice. And before we spoke to Jason, uh, my uh, producing partner, our Teresa and I, uh, I read one of uh, one of Jason's articles. It was called Brian Wilson's Better Days in Rolling Stone. And in that article, Jason describes cruising around L.A. with Brian and they go to the movies, they go to dinner, they hang out. And I thought to myself when I was reading that article, I was like, that's the movie I want to see. If I could see that, I think I think we could get something here. So we spoke to Jason and and Jason made the you know fatal mistake of saying, well, look, I'm here to help you any way I can. And uh, said, well, famous last words. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, hey, come over here and join me in the Alamo. We're going to have a really good time. And, uh, <laughs> and he agreed to do it. And and we tried. And I got to say, there was, as you said, I was in the follow the follow van. And I could hear what Brian was saying. And just you know, every 20 or 30 minutes or so, he would just say something remarkable and would kind of give me enough confidence to keep going um, uh, to try it again the next day and the next day. We ended up with about 70 hours of those guys in the car. I was going to say, how long were you driving? <laughs> we drove a lot. Um you know, back and forth to Malibu, all over Hollywood. And, you know, it's kind of amazing because Brian grew up like eight miles from where he lives now. And so every single corner, every single park, every single restaurant, he knows those things. It's all in him. And so driving around with Brian around L.A., you just feel like he's almost this sort of king who's just looking out over this place that's been the subject of his songs, that's been the backdrop of his life. 
And it's a really remarkable experience, you know, and, and um, I mean, the first trip, I think we did three days and I mean, it was, it was a total joy. It was so I, much fun. And that comes through. I mean, what really came through for me and I have a working knowledge of the Beach Boys story and Brian's story. And I was fortunate enough to actually meet him at one point with my mother and he sat down at a piano and just started playing. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, remember this moment because Brian Wilson is <laughs> sitting at a piano right next to me and playing. And it, it is such a distinct memory for me. Um, the story is so heartbreaking, yet so compelling and in a weird way, so positive mm-hmm. at the end that here's this man who's still getting to do his greatest love, which is actually performing, which is such so weird that at this point in his life, he wants to perform because in the older footage, you can actually see how incredibly painful it was for him Yeah, to be in front of people. Jason, what did, you know, and he's been a notoriously difficult interview and nothing is more fun than someone who's a notoriously difficult interview because <laughs> you feel like, is anyone else seeing the blood pouring out of my eyes and ears at this point? <laughs> um, you have this wonderful rapport for him, but how hard was it for you to keep asking the questions that needed to be asked in different ways while you were driving around? You know, one of the things, one of the experiences I had with Brian um, many years ago was driving across Florida. We we were in like the Hard Rock Cafe or something for like three days and then driving across Florida to another gig. And he'd been avoiding me for days and avoiding the interview. And finally, he said, you know, when we drive across Florida, we'll have like seven hours and and in the car and, and, and we'll talk. He didn't talk for one second, the entire seven hours. And I was like going crazy. And beating your got, head, beating your head into the steering wheel. I was just sitting in the back, you know, watching like Wheel of Fortune, you know, just like biding the time getting across Florida. But when we showed up at the next venue at the end of the day, he just started talking. And I, I sort of learned then, you know, you got to be there when it happens more than make it happen with Brian. And when he does feel like talking, when he is feeling reflective, he's such a thoughtful and deep and person who really is sensitive and really aware of his surroundings. And so you just kind of got to be there to intercept it. And so the strategy was more that. And I think the car is good for that because like I said earlier, you don't really need to be talking all the time. There can be these silences. You can listen to music. It's really nice. Um, so I think, I think that was a, that was kind of a big thing. It was like a comfort zone. Shocked to find out that he actually stopped touring in 1964. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, he'd had essentially a nervous breakdown in 1964 and, and part of that was things, you know, he was feeling really stressed about being on the road. He wasn't comfortable. He was arguing with his father, you know, I mean, all those things that were happening. Um, and he decided then you know, really presciently that, that he was going to go in the studio and he was going to make music. And that's when the Beach Boys music changed, um, when he was able to devote his energies and resources to being in the studio, to crafting these symphonic, personal tunes. And you can see by 1965, the Beach Boys were a completely different group making completely different music, much to, you know, the unhappiness of his father, of the band and his label. So he was fighting off all these 
other people at the same time, which was really hard for him. One of you talked to a lot of other artists throughout the the whole documentary. One of the things that struck me is that these major people are still literally baffled <laughs> by how he created music and what came out of him. And and some of the amazing things is you you're watching, I don't want to give too much away. Other people deconstruct it. <laughs> and were you, even though you're both, you know, veterans of the music business, sitting there, were you actually still shocked at what they found within the different layers of, of the product of the producing of the songs? Yeah, I, I know I certainly was. Um that scene with uh, with Don Waz, where we're breaking down God only knows when when you hear it, it's just it moves you. I mean, I, I started to tear up. I mean, it just uh, I had that exact same reaction that Don did, you know, standing off camera. Um, it's just like, my God. And I've heard the song a million times. And but when you hear it broken down like that, it if it doesn't move you, then, well, there's probably something probably something wrong with your soul. And there's like this thing where, you know, nowadays, if you're in the studio and you decide, oh, we, you know, we should add a, some strings here. We should add. You couldn't do that then. Right. No. He had to have he had to go into the studio, all of it planned out, have heard all the instruments and say, I need a banjo here and three flutes and a violin and some strings and then put it together live. These combinations of instruments that no one had ever heard played together. And these are like guys from the L.A. Philharmonic, you know, I mean, like it's an incredible thing that he was able to to do in his mind. And it, it's staggering because you, you, you step back and you realize this was all in his head. Yeah. And he really almost could not verbalize what he was hearing. It's amazing, isn't it? Oh, I mean, it, it was fun to discover too, with those interviews, which kind of came out in the editing, because you, you, you go into these interviews and you're thinking to yourself, okay, maybe we're going to get some answers because we are, you're interviewing Elton John and, Bruce Springsteen and Gustavo Dudamel and Jim James. And we were very selective about who we interviewed and we wanted a really diverse mix of artists, right? We wanted, you know, we were looking for people who would have different opinions and different insights into this music. And at the end of the day, every single one of them, regardless of what generation, what genre, you know, of music, they all kind of come away going, I don't know how he does that. And that was fun to discover in the edit. It's, you know, and we're asking all these questions is like, you go in thinking, all right, we've got the people, they're going to help us crack the code. And to a person, every one of them comes out and goes, no, I don't know how you do that. <laughs> so that was fun. That was fun to discover. It was amazing. And the the level of people that you, you had talking so deeply about him. I mean, he truly seems to be an artist's artist and is revered. It, for his technical prowess within the industry. Um, they all said such fascinating things. One thing I also found really interesting was that his fear is so palpable, mm. even today. Mm -hmm. And you, it makes you wonder, he suffers from uh, auditory hallucinations in that you do hear that he still is having them. Mm-hmm. But you likened him, one person I forget who has likened him to Mozart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Gustavo. Yeah. And do you think, is it just now that his genius is really being contextualized for people? 
I think, I mean, I think a couple things. I think his journey in life, you know, to being a performer really at this late state. I mean, he didn't start performing really before 1998. So the fact that he found somehow the courage to bring this music to life on stage, most of the music that he plays on stage now, like never even got played. The Beach Boys didn't play it. It's, a, mm -hmm. it's music that no one had ever heard live. And so I think him having the courage to own it, own this music, to perform it, and even to take a bow, to, to feel the love of the audience that he didn't feel for so long, I think was this huge burden lifted off of him. And to me, what I see is courage. You know, I see just this enormous courage of what it takes him every day, every concert to go on stage and perform. And I think people feel that. And so I think that has contributed to people having a deeper understanding of what this music means and how deep it goes. Oh, and what was one of the things you talk about is that he he talks about that God only knows gets a standing ovation every night. And you want to say, of course it should. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. yet he seems so there's almost this childlike quality where he seems so surprised that it gets a standing <laughs> ovation every night. Yeah, I know. It's incredible. I mean, he, I think even in the time I've known him, I think he's gone from being in a place of like, do people like this music to, yeah, you know, people like my music. I'm good. And that's really, really. <laughs> what, 45 years later, 50 years later, you're finally like, yeah, you know, that's. I think know, this is going to work out for me. Yeah. I might be able to make a living doing this. Yeah, uh huh. What, what, I mean, again, Jason, you know him so well. So I guess this is really a, a Brent question. What did you learn about him that you you didn't know even after doing all the research? I mean, it's like a softball to Jason because he's known him for years. So I want to go to Brent. That's a wonderful question. Um, the, the thing that I took away from it was uh, his courage, just how hard it is for him to, to go on stage, um, what that's like for him for those first few minutes leading up to that, uh, what it was like for him, how scared he was to go into the studio, and yet he still does it. And, you know, so I, I, I got to see and witness that, you know, that, that, that fear, that, that anxiety, you know, whatever that is that happens right before he goes on stage, we shot him several times on several different shows. And, and then of course, going into the studio, but then you see him begin to relax and you see that, you know, he had the courage to do this and, you know, he didn't let his fear stop him. And that was remarkable to see. That was remarkable to see. And then from a, just a fun perspective, what I enjoyed was how much he does like to listen to his own music. Um, I thought that was fun. I thought that he liked, you know, he's, he'd ask for songs and he kind of scores our film. He absolutely scores the film. What I also found interesting was the ones that you would allow him to hear a little bit and he would be like, turn it off. Yeah. And you, you really want to know what is going through his mind that suddenly he can't emotionally handle listening yeah. to them. Is he hearing something that he didn't like in the production? Is it bringing up a memory? I mean, you, you're on the edge of your seat going, why? Yes. And yet you never know. That's part of the enigma. Yes. I think that his relationship with his brothers was so deep and so fraught. And the fact that they're gone and he can't, you know, communicate with them. And when he hears some of these songs and he hears what they contributed and maybe he didn't tell them when they were alive. I mean, I think all of that is playing through his head. Um, because it really is just a, a, such a sad family story too. Right. You know, I yeah. mean, 
Brian's the last one and has been for a long time. Lost his mom, lost his dad, lost his two brothers. And I think that he misses them, you know, and I think it's really hard for him. And I think, can you imagine hearing the echoes of your family and what was happening in the studio? And, and I think it's really deep for him. Well, especially because he's finally at a place in his life where he can almost, it, it, it feels like it's almost become bittersweet mm-hmm. rather than spinning him off the rails. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, and that, that takes a pro that's a, that's a process. Part, another part, I, I just am so being so careful to not give away the film because I'm like, can remember it already from last night, frame by frame. I love the fact that for all of his apprehensions, like the second he got into the studio and started playing, he was in charge. Yep. He was the boss. It's remarkable, isn't it? It's, it's staggering. And the the respect he's getting from the other musicians. and, And there is a scene where someone's not quite getting it right. Yep. And he's stopping and stopping and stopping and stopping and even vocally trying to explain to them what they needed to do. And there's that one moment where you hear it. <laughs> it's right. I mean, he just, when he's in the studio, he becomes that guy that you, you know, you, you hope he'll be right. That is his place. And that, that is his comfort zone. And he just feels so comfortable and he takes that ownership of it. Um, yeah, it was amazing. There's that moment where he sits down at the piano. Yeah takes over and starts playing and you just kind of feel like all right here we go <laughs> great story happened there unless we were we were shooting that scene and it literally happens in real time as you see it in the film it happens that quickly um he gets into the studio he sits down at the piano and he doesn't dilly dally he just starts to go and he starts to you know direct this band and and do all of these scenes and i'm standing back behind the cameras and tears started streaming down my face. I was, it was just, I was so emotional watching Brian do this. And I went to kind of wipe a tear away to make sure nobody saw me. And I look over and about four or five other people are wiping tears out of their eyes <laughs> on the crew. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, I think we all knew we were witnessing something, you know, uh, a miracle. This, this is how, this is grace. This is how things are created. It's and, such a, prof- uh, it's such a profound moment in the, in, in the film. And also, you know, his band is so great and they've been with him for so long and they understand him and they give him this this comfort too, this ability to to rise up. And I mean, when when you see him play live, you know, just the band makes this music like it's just incredible to see. What what is his relationship with the remaining Beach Boys? Well, he's got, you know, Al, who is one of the, the co-founders of the Beach Boys, is on tour with him and they're really tight. And and then there's Mike, his cousin. And, you know, I mean, they, they're sort of famous for their lawsuits back and forth over the years. But as cousins, they're buddies, you know, and when you're with them together, they act like you would think like two cousins who grew up together act. And, you know, they, they're eating dinner and joking around and telling stories. So the personal relationship, I think, is, is really good. Um, business-wise, maybe is another story. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Um, <laughs> one of the parts I loved was you were listening with him to Dennis's album, mm. and you kind of realized he had never really listened to it. I found that shocking because you would just think, as a musician and as a brother, he would have really listened to it, and it really, yeah. really moved him. And he finally said. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, 
we I was pretty shocked that he had said that he hadn't heard it. I was like, how is that possible? But he really seemed that he had not. Um, and he had known that one song on it, but not the whole album. And when we he kept asking, you know, can we go back and listen to it? And that's all in the movie. And when he did, I mean, Brent could tell the story of the cameraman trying to hold the camera while he listened to the entire album because he didn't want to fast forward. He didn't want to slow down. He didn't want to stop. He wanted to listen to the whole album and he was soaking it up. And we expected him to only want to listen to it for five minutes. I told our DP Max, I said, I said, he goes, hey, should I bring in the tripod and set up all the lights and all this stuff? And it's like, no, no, he wants to listen to it now. Let's let's just go do it. Let's go shoot it. But you know, don't bring the tripod in. This is only going to last about five minutes. I think it's going to be too emotional. You know, cut to an hour later, and you know, we had to book a massage for the poor guy because uh, you know, he was, he was in traction. <laughs> yeah, he's got one shoulder all the way up. Um, did you expect the the acclaim you're already getting for it? I certainly didn't, Jason. I mean, I I I went into this really uh, blindly. I, I didn't know if people were gonna. Um, be able to connect with two people in a car and and connect with reading those emotions on Brian's faces. And, um, you know, because he, you know, it, it's still not like he's going to just open up the book. Um, you know, there's still you still have to kind of extrapolate from just the looks on his face. And um, so I, I I've been surprised. I've, I've been very pleasantly surprised. I don't know. I didn't really think about it that way. I mean, I just really thought if there's some way to, to share with people the courage of this guy and what he's overcome and how hard he works and sort of how deep this music runs, then we've done a good job. You know, um, I didn't really think about it beyond that. I'm really happy that people are connecting with it. And I do really think that a story like this give some hope. And I do think, you know, we're sort of short on that right now. And so I hope that that makes people, especially people who struggle themselves, maybe with mental health issues or any other issues that, you know, there, that you, you can achieve great things and that there, there is, you know, to push through and hope. And I hope Brian is, is kind of an inspiration for people that way. Is he happy now? I think he is. I mean, I think he's, um, He's, he's certainly curious. He certainly engages when he wants to engage. He's he has a beautiful family. He's got kids around him. Um, he's got a lot of love. He certainly <laughs> a lot of dogs. Got a lot of dogs. Which is always fun for the audio people. Yes. <laughs> it's always a good time. Yeah. And I think, you know, that, that, that he does feel that his music has means something to people. And I don't know that he felt that. For a long time so i do yeah i think he is happy well you guys have tackled a, a a topic and a subject that's been done so many times and i have to say this is to me the one wow. brent wilson and jason fine the documentary is extraordinary where can other people see it uh, november 17th um, it'll be, there'll be a screening theatrically for, uh, um, in about a hundred cities. So kind of check your local listings and, and then November 19th, which makes you Academy Academy qualified. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and then November 19th, uh, it'll be available, uh, on demand and, um, in about a hundred cities as well, theatrically. The long road home, Brian Wilson's story, it run, don't walk and start watching. Thank you so much. <laughs>